Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, <laughs> this feels, <laughs> this feels The same. moment you decide. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, uh, I don't know what yeah. I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Always edit. <laughs> so, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, we're calling this the History of Christian, no, wait, A History of Christian Theology. Um, yes. and, uh. I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. Hello, and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. This is Chad Kim. With me this week will be Tom Velasco and Trevor Adams, as usual. Um, Happy Thanksgiving to all of our listeners. I'm uploading this on the Friday after Thanksgiving. Sorry about the delayed upload. Uh, This week we will continue in the thought of Clement of Alexandria with his Stromata 3 and 4. Our conversation uh, will flow through a couple of different topics, and I wanted to give you a bit of a heads up. Um, We will look through the first 10 minutes about the difficulties of understanding exactly what Clement of Alexandria is arguing. Um, And after about 15 minutes in, we will start talking about providence and the problem of evil. Um, And at about uh, 26 minutes, we will look at Clement's view of women and how that is different from the rest of the ancient world. And we will deal with that topic for some time before about 47 minutes. uh, We will look at heaven uh, and the nature of perfection um, in both Clement's thought and its possible relationship uh, to a later theologian, Charles Wesley, um, who was the sort of the founder of the Methodist movement. So those are the various topics that we will cover. the fir- the first 15 minutes are a little tough and the last 47 minutes are uh, the la- after about 47 minutes are very tough um, but i think there's some really good stuff in here um, about the nature of women um, at, and in clement's thought and what that means for early christian theology um, so i hope you enjoy this episode um, and we will be back next week with stromata 6 and 7 uh, before getting to um a new episode with Caleb Frizz, uh, who is my friend, who's not a Christian. So enjoy this episode. Thanks. But we are um, reading the most diff- one of the most difficult theologians uh, from the late, you know, from from the ancient world that no one studies. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, he's apparently so difficult that there are so few people you can find that will even comment on what he's saying, except for they use him uh, in order to quote the heretics. Um, yeah. Well, that's that's been my biggest problem. Is I in many instances don't I I don't know what he's saying a lot of times. Yeah. Because in fact, and here's here's what I've come across. There are a number of times where he's putting forward a thesis, and I don't know if it's his or if it's a guy who he's attacking, and he switches mm-hmm. back and forth so seamlessly between a view that he attacks. I can't tell, and I'll go back and I'll reread it. And I'm like, I don't know what he's defending here and what he's not defending. Right. And so there's this tension that really does pop up. So there are a lot, like, even the parts here that I thought were super cool and that I was really interested in, I was confused as to exactly what he was getting at because it was interspersed with him criticizing some Gnostic teacher out there. Yeah. Um, and that does make him, yeah. So anyway, I, I think I think that's right. I'm with you on some of that difficulty. Um uh, yeah, so maybe we should just get into what was what was interesting to us. I I wanted to bring up the fact that for Clement there is a problem with some philosophy, 
and to to what I think that he means by that, uh, and maybe it isn't even philosophy properly so called. Um, but I love the fact that he wants to reclaim the term Gnostic. We talked about it a little bit last week. Um, mm. but, but the fact that he wants to say there are these people who think that base, I mean, what he's kind of saying, it, it, you know, when we use this term Gnostic, it's got a pejorative, a mocking tone. Like, you know, today, if you hear, you know, a lot of Christians, when they say so-and-so thinks that, you know, it's a Gnostic thinking, or that's just Gnostic, we mean to say it's a heresy and it's a bad thing. Yeah. And I kind of think what, um, what Clement might be saying in more popular parlance and a, and a common way to speak is, you don't have the market cornered on truth, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's sort of like the Gnostics are going, we know what the truth is and you don't. Um, and he's saying, look, just because you have the name knowledge um, yeah. doesn't mean you, ha- you have everything to say about it. So I'm not going to let you run away with that term. And don't forget either, audience, that not- Gnostic <laughs> comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. So that's so he's I mean, that's what he's doing here is he's saying you can't claim that word like you alone get the word knowledge. Um, he's saying we have the right to that word just as much as you do. And so it but that's, by the way, Chad, yeah. another thing that's <clears throat> for me <clears throat> confuses this past this uh, writing because he keeps referring to true Gnosticism and the real gnosis or the real knowledge. And when he does it, he sometimes doesn't put the word real or true. He just puts Gnostic. And so I'm like, well, who are you talking about? Are you talking about the bad Gnostic? Or are you talking about the good Gnostic? And I almost sense, and I don't know if I'm wrong about this, that every time he uses the word Gnostic, he means it in a good sense. And that when he means the, when he's addressing the bad guys, he calls them by name, like Valentinus or, yeah. Uh, what's the Lattes. yeah yeah I think you're right on that because he'll often say the Gnostic and in the mouths of someone else that we've read that <laughs> would seem like oh he's he's talking about the heretics who everyone dislikes but to me I was like yeah he's actually seems to be then talking about something he thinks is true that the Gnostic should believe or something like that yeah almost like He's saying, I'm, it's not just that you don't have the right to claim or to be the only one to call yourself a Gnostic or to be the only one to use the word knowledge. It's almost as if he's saying, you don't have the right to use that word at all. We are the ones who have the right to use the word Gnostic and Gnosis and knowledge. Uh, it's almost that, it would seem to me. Um, all right. Well, is there, I mean, I, you know, I've got a few like passages that I underlined that I really liked. I don't know that they're questions per se, um, but a lot of this is concerned with faith. So do we want to talk about, I, I think one reason, one way that he pushes back against the, the heretic Gnostics is on this notion of faith, because uh, it's important to remember for the, the, you know, for Valentinus, uh, for um, Basilides, um, some of these other, you know, true Gnostics, or these false Gnostics, the, the heretical Gnostics, knowledge is all you need to be saved. Um, and if you have the right kind of knowledge, you get to go to heaven. And basically you get to escape your physical earth, um, and and you are the right kind of, uh, of person uh, that gets to be saved. And so... Um, I think that Clement's trying to say that you have to supplement that with faith. Uh, so I was just curious, you know, what kind of things struck you guys about what faith means for Clement? 
Well, here he makes a, uh, there are a couple of quotes here I'll just throw out early on in book five. One, he says, faith is the ear of the soul. And so he clearly looks at faith as a, um, uh, a medium or maybe a, a tool that we have that we use to attain information or to form beliefs, like um, almost like you, for instance, eyesight or hearing. My eyes and my eyesight enable me to see things in the world. My hearing enables me to hear things. Faith is a, um, it's almost like a sense, something which enables me to grasp or understand or lay hold of spiritual truths, it seems to me. Um, yeah, and, and when he says that, because the faith is the ear of the soul, and he says, in such the Lord intimates faith to be when he says, he that has ears to hear, let him hear, so that by believing he may comprehend what he says. So, yeah, it is almost like the having of the faith is what allows you to uh, understand the truth mm-hmm. in the same way that an ear lets you basically literally hear the words that are being spoken. So Yeah. It also seems, he seems to hold to a view which is, long predominated in the church that faith comes before understanding almost like you have to kind of believe. And I don't want to commit him to that. I, I do get confused on some of the things he says because sometimes he seems to contradict himself or maybe he's unnecessarily vague about something, Mm -hmm. but he does seem to imply that you should believe first. And then once you have believed understanding seems to follow, which is, uh, it's very much a, a view that has predominated in church history. Um, uh, you know, the, this idea that faith comes followed by understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he he has this phrase on, the fir- for me, the first page, chapter one of books five. The apostle then, uh, manif- or, well, he quotes, um, he quotes Romans 117 uh, for our uh, Lutherans and uh, those people out there. And further on again, he adds, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, the importance of faith. The apostle then manifestly announces a twofold faith, or rather one which admits of growth and perfection for the common faith lies beneath as a foundation. And so this idea of a common faith comes up several times for him. Um, and it's, it's common. There is koinonia uh, fellowship. And, you know, it's what's what everybody can have. And I think what's interesting throughout this text is that uh, Clement sort of, to me, he's saying that everyone can have a basic level of faith, but not all people, um, not all people are going to go to the extent to study and learn and do all the things that Clement's going to do to make a defense of the faith. Um, for like the philosophers do. Um, and this is one of those notions that I struggle with as a, as a, you know, as a teacher or as a Christian, because I, I tend to think that, well, if it's Christian, I'm fascinated by it and I want to know more. Surely everybody's like me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and he, he goes even further. Cause it's not just that he would assert that not every Christian does it, but he would go so far as to say that not every Christian should. Right. It, not every Christian is going to concern themselves with philosophical speculation and theology. He actually later on is going to quote from uh, you know various passages like in 1 Corinthians uh, 12 when he talks about spiritual gifts and how God has called some people to certain offices. And he, he spends a lot of time in this book talking about perfection, which I also get a little confused about. But I think he means 
perfection in the sense of being what you're supposed to be. And so he essentially is saying that Christian perfection, like meaning whatever a Christian is supposed to be, it looks different for different people. So some people, Christian perfection is going to entail an increase in knowledge, an increase in understanding. But for others, it may not entail the same thing. And he goes on and he quotes, he says, not everybody's a teacher, not everybody's a, you know, a prophet, not everybody's an apostle, not everybody speaks in tongues. He quotes all of these things that Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians saying, look, we are meant to be different. And at the same time, though, he does think that the Christian will be truly apprehending the truth beyond, sure. beyond uh, everyone else who claims, which is why he says, uh, he basically said, and the knowledge of the Son and Father is the attainment and comprehension of the truth by the truth. And then later, he seems to compare uh, basically two different quotes, uh, the idea of just the the narrow, kind of the idea of the narrow path and, the, and you know, not many making it through the, the gate. And uh, he, he compares that verse to a quote from a philosopher. He says, the mob then said, I cannot become a philosopher. He says, and then he says, for many are called, but few chosen, Matthew 20, 16. Uh, Knowledge is not in all, and which he quotes from Corinthians. And so he seems to think like, it almost sounded to me as if, like, yeah, like we we as Christians, we actually kind of are only, or we, in, in his, wow, edit out all those stumbles right there. In his day, he would have thought basically that uh, the Christian is really the only one who's the true Gnostic and thus kind of like the true philosopher. So anyway. Yeah, I did want to add one other little line about faith. You know, I just feel like maybe faith, you know, maybe this could be something that more people could get into a little bit. But, you know, we're not yet to we're, we're far from Luther and we're far from uh, really getting into faith alone in terms of like when that's going to be emphasized by Luther. Although he thinks that it's it's latent here in the early texts as well, because um, it's certainly in Scripture um, and um so he quotes, it's a little further on in chapter one, um, but uh, he says, for by grace we are saved, you know, quoting uh, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, not indeed without good works. Um, so this is the problem, you know, between James and Romans, not without good works, but we must, by being formed for what is good, acquire an inclination for it, uh, which, you know, I think is kind of a cool way of looking at it and, you know, talking about you know, ancient views of virtue, virtue is a habit of character. You know, virtue is not necessarily just one action um, amongst many. It's a life of uh, right action and you form a habit. Um, and he thinks that, that I, to, as I understood it, uh, that, that faith is actually the first step towards um, acquiring this, this habit, this inclination uh, for doing good. Um, and, and it, it also helps him deal with the Gnostic teaching, which is the most important thing for the Gnostic isn't necessarily how you live. It's about what you know. Um, and he wants to say how you live really matters. Um, and, and faith, uh, gives you the ability, as I understand it, uh, to, to live well. Yeah. And that, in that same passage you quoted at the beginning of it, yeah, he seems to think that the act of faith uh, which will let you basically attain the knowledge of God um, is something you do 
and, and you must do with an act of your own will. He says, for neither is it possible to attain it without the existence of free choice. <laughs> and then he says, and nor does the whole depend on our own purpose, as for example, and then he goes, you know, for by grace we are saved, not indeed that works. So, yeah, it's an act of, which that's what kind of brings the act of the human will into it. So, it's yeah, he, he again harps a lot on free will. One thing, however, and this is where, uh, and this just holds true in my experience with this entire work, I feel like he's contradicting himself so much. Like, he talks about the fact that faith is completely by a free choice. He talks extensively in the reading about how God is providential. That is, he orchestrates things in some way. And he, and, and he defines God's providence by permission, meaning he says God doesn't make us do things. God doesn't make us have faith. God permits me to have faith. And he goes on and he talks about how he permits evil in the same way, that God doesn't cause somebody to be evil. He permits them to be evil. But then he chastises people for denying God's providence. And I sometimes get confused as to what he's criticizing there because he almost seems to be criticizing people for not recognizing that God is somehow orchestrating things and making them happen, right? But permitting something to happen isn't the same thing as organizing things and orchestrating them and making them happen. You know what I mean? So, so maybe, I get confused in, in some of his approaches. Well, maybe, I don't know this, but maybe a way to read it then is to, just to say that he thinks God's providence is as simple as um, basically being the will of God that it happened, that, that he permitted you to do something. But that means that, you know, he could have stopped it if he had wanted to, essentially. So the fact then of him permitting you to do action X at some time means that God did, in his providence, supply that action X would be performed by you, you know, at some moment of time, you know. Yeah, I mean, that we, like, that we're doing this podcast, he allowed it, so it is within his providence in that sense. But, mm -hmm. yeah, but maybe it isn't, maybe what he's chastising then is just this, direct causation view of providence. Well, he definitely is chastising the direct causation view of providence. And I don't have a, I don't have a problem with him um, defining providence, I guess, as permission. Um, but here's the thing, right? If I, if I, as a teacher, am sitting in the classroom and I let my students, um, I don't know, play around with a ball while they're in class, mm -hmm. I'm permitting something. Mm -hmm. Um, it's hard to connect that to the notion of providence. I don't know that in what sense I'd be providential over them playing with the ball, except for the, the degree to which I am letting them do it. Um, but he doesn't, he, at the same time, he kind of flips it and basically says, he kind of takes this next step of he's allowing it. And therefore what happened is what he wanted. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So I might allow them to play with the ball, but that doesn't mean that every effect that comes from it is what I want to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? I might let them throw the ball around, but if somebody throws the ball through the window, that is not what I wanted to happen. And yeah. he seems to make that jump. And so I get confused sometimes as to where he's like, how he's using his terms and where he's going with it. 
Yeah, it's a, I mean, just a side note, um, it is a common feature of Gnosticism uh, or uh, at least of, of Valentinian Gnosticism from Valentinus um, that there are three that, well, basically you're elected into Gnosticism and you don't have a choice. <laughs> um, so part of what he is actually um, reacting against is a sort of a Gnostic view of the world where where well, one of the gods, the high god, presumably, um, elects um, and just decides um, who gets to be um, saved. Mm. By the way, I actually found a passage I was looking for forever, and that's because it's in book four. I thought it was in book five because I just assumed these were connected. But this is in uh, chapter book four, chapter 13. No, sorry, chapter 12. And it's uh, about two-thirds of the way through that chapter. He says here, and this is interesting, and a lot of people would feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable with this. Think about what he's saying here. For neither did the Lord suffer by the will of the Father, meaning Jesus did not suffer because it was God's will that he suffered, nor are those who are persecuted persecuted by the will of God, meaning nor are they persecuted because it's God's will that they're persecuted, He says, since either of two things is the case, either persecution in consequence of the will of God is a good thing, meaning people persecute because it's a good thing, because everything God wants is good, or those who decree and afflict are guiltless. But nothing is without the will of the Lord of the universe. So he just said that you can't say that people being persecuted um, is that that's the will of God. And he just said, you can't say even that the death of Jesus was the will of God. And then he says, but nothing is apart from the will of the universe. He then goes on and he defines it. He says, it remains to say that such things happen without the prevention of God. So here he's defining providence as it's just that God doesn't stop it. That's what he means right. by the providence of God. Um, and then he says, for this alone saves both the providence and the goodness of God. So, which, by the way, I do want to pause here. Um, here he is giving a very uh, common explanation of what it means for God to be in control of things. And it's one that people of certain theological bents don't like. Because he is explaining here that what he means by God's providence is that he just allows things to happen. In other words, he doesn't stop it. Right? And he goes on and he says, um, we must be persuaded that he does not prevent those that cause evil things, but instead he overrules it for good, the crimes of his enemies. And he'll go on and basically say he allows people to do what they want to do because of free will. And then he basically takes what they do intending evil, and he just brings it and makes something good of it. He overrules it for good. Um, But he very clearly believes that God's providence is prevention, that is, Uh, or I should say, is him withholding prevention, meaning he's allowing people to do stuff. But then, again, later on, he's going to jump into this way of describing it where it's almost as if God is orchestrating, God is causing, which is a different kind of thing. So there's some confusion there, but he does seem to identify God's providence as being allowance, allowing people to make Mm -hmm. choices when he could intervene. Is there, a, is there a fancy theological word for Well, this? that's very much like Arminianism and Wesleyanism and Cassianism. Okay. I mean, various. there are lots of theological views we haven't got to. No doubt most of our listeners won't know those three terms, but that's 
those are three schools of thought that basically adopt this yeah. idea. Of course, the opposite would be Calvinism or August, some forms of Augustinianism. Sorry, Chad, I don't want to jump the gun there. And I know that, <laughs> um, saying that, that God, not only it's more than just allowing that God absolutely causes everything to happen hmm. or orchestrates them in some sense. Yeah. I mean, it's also important to recognize here that, um, this is part part of the deal with Basilides here. Um, or I, I'm still not quite sure that I'm pronouncing it correctly. Uh, but I, I said Basilides, but I'm Basilides. not saying it correct. Yeah, Basilides. That sounds better. Um, <laughs> but, but Basilides is also trying to account for evil in the world, um, and so part of his project as a you know, even though he, we don't consider him orthodox he is looking at the world and saying that there's sin and there's problems and there's martyrdom and christians are being killed um and so he basically the the gnostic response is something like well the world's evil it was all a big mistake um yeah. and um and so and it you know sort of the weird thing within that is how god ever allowed there to be this first mistake um yeah. they never quite get to that explanation uh, but once you sort of allow that God accidentally let part of himself out and, you know, Sophia and one of the aeons got together with a demiurge and did whatever they did to produce humans, um, we have evil in the world. Um, and God wants to rescue us out of the evil of this world. Um, so they give that's part of the overall Gnostic picture. And it sort of suppresses human freedom. It suppresses yeah. the role of the individual where we're just sort of bit you know, bit players, puppets, and this cosmic drama. Um, and again, I feel like I'm defining Calvinism, but I'm not. I'm, I'm defining Gnosticism. Well, <laughs> except for this, that Calvinists certainly don't have the same cosmology as a Gnostic, right? So uh, I, maybe to fill in some of the, the explanation, some of the gaps there, when you said, I don't know wh- how they justified their mistake, or God's mistake, they do it by basically creating separation between him and his and his beat, right? I mean, that's what we read. Who was it that cataloged all of the Gnostic? Oh, Irenaeus. Yeah. Well, who was it? Irenaeus. Irenaeus, yeah. yeah. So um, basically, I mean, if you want to boil it down to kind of a common view, I mean, there's, there's different takes, but more or less, the Gnostics believe there was one God who created a bunch of beings who were really awesome, but who weren't quite as good as him. And then they, in turn created beings who were really awesome, but not quite as good as themselves. And then they in turn created beings who were really awesome, but not quite as good as themselves. And by basically going through this hierarchy, you get to a point where something is not good enough to where it could make something that is bad. And so the bad stuff comes into the world because it was made by this. And this is where the term demiurge, which we've used a lot comes from. It's made by this God-like being who isn't God. The ignorant Demiurge. Yeah, yeah, this Demiurge who was created himself, but is sufficiently different from God that he could make something evil. And that's their view, is that thing made this world, and this world is horrible. And it seems, it's, it is um, Clement's response that, no, that is not how evil came into the world. Evil came into the world because God permitted and allowed free will beings yeah. to do what they wanted to do, and they chose to be evil. So 
And he says that's good. Like, it is good to create beings with free will, right? And, in fact, he has a quote here. This is on Chapter 11 of, of Book 4. He says – he talks about a judge uh, who is ruling unjustly, um, who it says that he's unjustly punishing people. And he says the injustice of that judge does not affect the providence of God, meaning it's not God's fault that that judge is unjust. And he says, for the judge must be master of his own opinion, not pulled by strings like inanimate machines set in motions on, set in motion only by external causes. Accordingly, he is judged in respect to his judgment, and we also in accordance with our own. So he basically says... The goodness of God in allowing free will is that he judges us with what we do with our free will. Yeah. And that's where God's goodness overrides our injustice. I wanted to turn to his view of um, masculinity and femininity. Thank you. That was the big one I mm-hmm. wanted to hit. What he had to say about that was so fascinating. So I'm I'm looking at um, 419 and the – and the Nicene Fathers, but chapter 8, book 4, he says, and we admit that the same nature exists in every race and the same virtue, Uh, you know, meaning Greeks, barbarians, Jews, all of them have the same nature and the same virtue. As far as respects human nature, the woman does not possess one nature and the man exhibit another, but but the same. So also with virtue. Um, and then he goes on to sort of explain same of what is virtue, and he says that it's available to both. Um, and what's fascinating about that to me is that there was an ancient view. I mean, actually, Aristotle seems to th- say this. I believe it's in his politics that women are sort of predisposed um, uh, to to be less intellectual than the man, um, and that there is sort of something less than. Uh, perfect in the woman than in the man, and usually the the men are considered rational, and the female, the women are considered sort of um, subject to desire. Um, and in a way, uh, Clement is sort of undoing some of that, leveling the playing field a bit, um, which is, as far as I can see, fairly radical in his explanation. I think it has some roots in what Paul says, but but never explained in this to this degree. Yeah, well, listen to this. He says this, and and. What you said is right on. Aristotle thought that women ought not do philosophy. It was not appropriate to them. They were not made to think like men are. He said women are just above beasts and lower than slaves, which he looked at as less than a normal human anyway. And, And Clement says this. He says women are therefore to philosophize equally with men, right? So, I mean... He and but again for our audience, I've been saying that he's full of all these contradictions. So he he makes these radical claims talking about the equality of men and women, like the part that Chad just read. You know, saying that that uh, that women can have virtue just as much as men can, and that you hold them to the same standard of virtue as men, and that they're the same kind of being. Um, uh, he says here. He says. Uh, oh yeah, Chad. I can't. I may be retreading something that you said, mm-hmm. but he said, if people say that a restraint and a righteousness and whatever qualities are regarded as following uh, that follow them is the virtue of males as opposed to females, 
and that it belongs to the male alone to be virtuous and to the woman to be licentious and unjust. Meaning if people say that men are supposed to be virtuous and women are meant to be licentious, he goes, that's offensive. (laughs) And I was like, he used the word offensive. Nobody in the first century used the word offensive, right? People didn't like today we're offended. Today we're offended at everything. (laughs) Nobody was offended back then. Aristotle defined a woman as an incomplete man. Yeah. He said just above the beast. He had no concern of offending. He wasn't worried about that. Clement goes so far as to say it's offensive to say that a woman cannot be virtuous like a man. And to say that a woman can, in in fact, engage in philosophy just like a man can. But, again, same thing I brought up with Providence. I get conflicted. He contradicts himself a bit. Or maybe contradiction is not the right term. Maybe it's that he's wrestling with a tension that he has not defined in such a way that I can really discern that he's answered all the questions. Maybe that's really what it comes down to. He's like giving a lot, but taking a little back. He's giving a lot, but he's taking a little back. Because the quote I read before I read that last little bit where he said, women are therefore to philosophize equally with men. He then goes on and says, though the males are preferable at everything, (laughs) unless they become effeminate. (laughs) Which means, unless they become more like women. And so it's like, You sit here and you read this and you go, wow, he has just put forward women's rights by light years. Yeah. And then he's like, well, I'm going to take a lot back real quick. Yeah. Right. But men are always preferable unless they have become effeminate. Like, it's so weird. He does the same thing, too. Well, wait. Okay. So let me just. Let me just try to save Clement a bit here. Okay. <laughs> but that's what I was getting at with the same thing with the providence and the permission. I got confused. He he would take he would give a definition that I thought this is awesome, and then he'd pull something back, and I go, wait a minute, that doesn't square with your definition. That's kind of where I was going. Same thing here. Go ahead. Well, I mean, all I was going to add was, is he is actually in between quotes from Euripides in that section that Tom just read about, unless they have become effeminate, uh, and and the next sentence down, and how recklessly Euripides writes sometimes this and sometimes that. Um, so it's hard. I mean, it's hard to say is he referencing precisely that line that Tom quoted, which may be explaining uh, the quote above it. Crest of the Hound ran keenly in the stag's track. I have no idea what that means. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he's explaining that in the quote, and then he says, Euripides, you're being reckless. Um, Hmm. Maybe? (laughs) I mean, this is... Because that's one of the problems with this text, is he'll put forward somebody else's view, and I can't tell if he's putting forward that view or his own. Like he, he just, he freely flows back and forth between his own perspective and somebody else's. And it becomes really hard to tell sometimes what he's arguing. No, Yeah. I mean, I didn't even get to mention earlier, but when we first talked about faith and the free will, but he, he mentions how good works were part of salvation then, but then later below, I don't know if this is him saying this or if it's someone else because, but by mere faith is able to save. He goes without without any proofs. Basically, he goes, and then he acts like faith is all there is really to be saved. Even though he just said so. No, I I agree yeah. that there's a theme of what's going on, and I realize the name of this is the miscellanies, and he kind of warns you that he's going to be wandering around, but it's a bit yeah yeah. 
really unorganized if you yeah. ever try to read this, uh, people who are listening. Yeah. So beware. Well, yeah. as, as Chad said last week, so this is called the miscellanies or the stramata, and stramata is a Greek word which means patchwork. <laughs> and so yeah. when you read through, you do get the sense that he's just patching stuff together. He's just saying, um, saying stuff. But it's crazy because, guys, Christianity is always accused of being patriarchal, which it is. I mean, it, it does have a history of being patriarchal. But I always hear the narrative that the Christians came in and ruined everything because it used to be matriarchal in, you know, that the pagans were matriarchal. There have been matriarchal societies, but they are far and away, the, the, they are the minority. Mm-hmm. And the dominant civilizations historically have all been patriarchal. Um, Imperial Rome is patriarchal. In fact, you couldn't have a female emperor of Rome. It was as patriarchal as it gets. Their pantheon was ruled over by a king god, a male or a masculine deity who raped women indiscriminately. Um, They were incredibly patriarchal. Obviously, Plato and Aristotle, the fathers of philosophy, are patriarchal. Although, actually, Plato, Plato gives some nods to women that that a lot of people uh, don't give him, I think, enough credit for him. And he, yeah. the symposium, it's interesting because in the symposium, he's at a dinner party or Socrates is at a dinner party. And one guy stands up and says that a man can't love a woman because a woman has nothing to offer a man. And so since real love has to be selfless, there can never be real love between a man and a woman. But Socrates counters by saying that in his whole life, He says to his friends, he goes, you all know me. I don't purport to have knowledge about anything. He goes, I purport to be unwise. And he goes, except in love. In love, I understand. I know love because a woman taught me. (laughs) And so he actually contradicts and says, a woman can teach me. So you do have some of that. But then then you regress with Aristotle. and, And at this time in the Roman Empire, just as we were saying Aristotle was dehumanizing toward women. I think, even though they didn't say it explicitly, yeah, the Roman Empire was also a bit dehumanizing of women as well in their their attitudes. And so this would, just for that reason alone, would have been some pretty extreme feminism. Oh, extreme. Yeah. yeah, And I think not only was it it extreme in the Gospels when uh, women were often the sole uh, bearers of the witness to what had happened and things like that, not only do I think was the multiple attestations of women being the ones who saw the risen Lord first and of arguably Mary being the first time. Not only was that extreme, but I think this kind of shows that maybe this tradition continued even amongst the culture they lived in, Um, which kind of makes me wonder, I mean, what do you guys think? How much do you think this reflects how the church really acted though then? I mean, do you think, this is not a reliable source. Well, I don't want to say it's not reliable. I was taught this by a professor at Boise State. who He's, he's a professor whose expertise is in first, well, in early Christianity. So, I mean, he, he knows. But this isn't from a book that he cited statistics in or anything like that. Right. But he said that the largest percentage of converts to Christianity prior to Constantine's conversion were women. And he said, and it's because Christianity offered to women a much greater 
a sense of uh, self-esteem, I guess. I mean, yeah. they just had more rights as Christians. And he him, he actually cited what you just referred to, the fact that Jesus had female disciples, like Mary Magdalene, that Jesus appeared first to women. There seems to be this, this, um, this sense in which Jesus is specifically trying to help out women and kind of trying to, to associate his name with them. You have Paul making claims like, in Christ there is neither slave nor free nor Jew nor Greek nor male nor female, mm-hmm. but all are one in Christ indicating that that dignity or that that it, that well basically indicating an equality yeah. with men and women which again it's just not common in those days yeah um well and i mean it it's a complex um record i mean you know and yeah. so i'm sure i'm sure there are lots of uh, there were lots of women converts and actually that's what Kelsus says the origin which we'll read in a little bit um it's a it's a uh, religion for women and slaves um, and so there is some of that mentality uh, amongst the intellectual uh, Romans, Greeks. Um, but, you know, it, it is it, sometimes it can be hard to see exactly what the leadership looked like. Um, and oh, and I wanted to say when Tom talks about disciples, I think he means that broadly and, and certainly not in the sense of the 12 apostles. Oh, of course. Of course. So yeah, broadly in the sense of a follower who is a student of his, Mary Magdalene was a follower. She wasn't one of the 12. No, not by any means. Now, I will say that there are some who argue that Junia in Romans 16 was a bishop um, or an episkopos. Um, and, uh, or no, it's amongst the apostles. Sorry, not an Episcopal. It's amongst the apostles, it says. And there are some discussions about whether or not the pastoral epistles like first Timothy or Titus allows for women to be deacons, which I think is a possibility. And, you know, there are all these cases of women who, uh, Lydia, uh, at the church, um, you know, she seems to own the house where the church meets and acts and these sorts of things. So I think that there are examples of women in, in, in places of leadership, but, but probably not, uh, you know, at least not the twelve, the twelve disciples who become the twelve apostles. Yeah. No women there. Well, as Chad just said, it is a complex tradition. It's a complex history. Ch- uh, Trevor and I just referenced uh, Jesus's disciple, uh, female disciples, his appearance to them. Referenced the fact that Paul says that that there's no distinction, male, female, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, there are texts also which prioritize males as being proper leaders within the church and within the home. And that does, it does, of course, convolute the argument. I mean, uh, it it definitely can give a sense to people that, um, well, it can reinforce the idea that Christianity is very patriarchal. And some of the, some of the claims in scripture are very, very, seem very strongly, uh, yeah, misogynistic almost. And, and I think that's part of the problem in this text we're reading, because it seems to me that Clement is actually wrestling through that. Clement is holding to this view of that women are equal with men, but he also wants to be very careful. And and here I should probably, for our listeners, make a distinction between two common views of the of the relationship between men and women. One being egalitarianism, which is that men and women, in every sense, well, in 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 every sense, in terms of rights and responsibilities, are equal which means an egalitarian would say that a woman has the right to hold any office in the church and that she is also authoritatively equal to her husband 
And then there is, in addition to the egalitarian view, there is the um, um, complementarian complementarian view. I was blanking it there. Thank you guys for helping me out there. The complementarian view, and the complementarian view is that men and women are equal in dignity, in importance, in value, that they are equal in all of those matters, but that they are different, and as they are different, they also have different roles, responsibilities, and sometimes maybe rights as well. And so they complement each, each other. And, and it, you know, again, I mentioned that Clement seems to wrestle with this, maybe sometimes even contradicts himself, but there are times when he acknowledges this. So for instance, he says, if there were no difference between man and woman, both would do and suffer the same things. As then there is sameness as far as respects the soul, so a man's soul and a woman's soul are the same. He says she will attain to the same virtue. He says, but there is difference as respects the particular construction of the body. As she is, and this, of course, a feminist probably may not feel super comfortable with, he says she is destined for childbearing and housekeeping. So (laughs) I think Clement, and, and he will go on to talk about leadership in the home, which he seems to ascribe to a man, and in the church, although he doesn't specifically mention, I don't think, do you guys recall whether, you know, about bishops and deacons? He doesn't talk about church structure, but the line um, on 432, book four, uh, chapter 19, he says, the wise woman then will first choose to persuade her husband to be her associate, associate in what is conducive to happiness. And should that be found impracticable, like can't be done, let her by herself earnestly aim at virtue. So, you know, all good so far. Gaining her husband's consent in everything, so as never to do anything against his will. (laughs) Wait, but then he says, with the exception of what is reckoned as contributing to virtue and salvation. So it's like... You know, it, it, again, it's the back and forth. So, well, you're, you're supposed to do everything that's in accord with his will, but I guess at last resort, if it's unjust or, uh, or unjust or, you know, doesn't lead to, you know, better in the relationship with God, well, then, you know, you should do that. So I appreciate that he at least allows that caveat. Yeah, I, I think he is honestly, as so many of us, wrestling with, the scriptures and wrestling with the tradition and recognizing that there's tension that that we do believe in an equality but there's also these other things that have been taught and said and just trying to wrestle through what that means um and i think that could at least partly explain it i mean sometimes sometimes i know i can get caught up in a discussion or an argument where i maybe Butter or, or no, sorry, stutter or kind of trip over my words and where I can't quite clarify what I think about something largely because I don't know exactly what I think because I see points on both sides. And I think maybe he's kind of doing that a little bit on this subject. I don't know. And I think he is wrestling also between something that we've hinted at here multiple times. And that is the fact that we have this soul body duality in which he obviously doesn't think the woman, uh, the woman's body and the man's body are equal in that same sense. But, and I can't find the passage here, but he does say of the soul, it's colorless, uh, you know, shapeless. It is, you know, basically without all these forms and in which case it, it's simple. And so it's obvious that our souls are equal to him, but mm-hmm. he also is, yeah, he is seeming to 
wrestle with that equality, which the soul is, you know, often said, what is saved, of course, and then mm-hmm. we are resurrected. And in which case, yeah, then we also have this body, which isn't equal. Like, yeah. And which today I don't think is even actually really a controversial thing in all technicality to say. I mean, in the sense that, like, uh, you know, your military requirements for a man are going to be greater because of their upper body strength limits or whatever. I mean, there's there's certain ways in which, of course, he brought up something that would be controversial, which is your body is suited for housekeeping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <that's, laughs> there's a bit more... Which he seems to infer because of childbirth, which that's yeah. a, that's a kind of a... That is, which, yeah, in a way, I mean, like, I don't know. Sometimes well, I, I would often thought that is unique that, you know, women do get to give birth, and so they notice this in, you know, in yeah. their world. Well, can I actually maybe, this just came to mind, and uh, it, I, I might be wrong on this, but I think maybe we're coloring the fact that he uses the word housekeeping with our modern notion of housekeeping. Mm, fair enough. And I think maybe when he says that they, because it just occurred to me when I said what I said, that maybe what he's essentially saying is the fact that a woman is designed to carry children makes them suited kind of naturally, perhaps he's saying, to housekeeping, meaning to playing that role of a mother with her children. Maybe that's all he means with it because mm. the inference wouldn't make sense otherwise. Like, I mean, I automatically mentally jump to this idea that he was making the claim that therefore women should clean the house <laughs> or something like yeah. that. But that would not follow at all. But maybe – he does just mean something like this. He's maybe just referencing the relationship between a mother and her children um, being a certain kind of relationship that a father doesn't have uh, to his children, perhaps. Hmm. Not that it's better or worse, just that it's different that, and that that is biological in makeup. I don't know. I'm just trying to maybe give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit, no, a little bit there. That's a good, good try. Yeah. There's a, there, I mean, there are, you know, we're running out of time. There are just so many good lines I wanted to, uh, you know, he talks about why we should be ethical or why we should follow the law. And he goes through this whole thing about how it's not for gain or reward or fear of punishment. And he's on uh, book four, chapter 22. He says, for he does not consider whether any extrinsic lucrative gain or enjoyment follows to him but drawn by the love of him who is the true object of love and led to do what is requisite practices piety, which, you know, I think is a beautiful, you know, way to explain why we do what we do as Christians. And, um, you know, he seems to even say almost heaven doesn't matter in, in points, which is, a uh, you know, sometimes people ask me why I'm a Christian and they say, well, you know, do you want to just go to heaven? And I say, well, in, in a way, no, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that I don't, you know, believe in heaven. I have a really hard time figuring out what heaven is. Uh, but why I live the way that I live, why I do the things that I do, matter to me not so much because heaven exists. Um, and I'm not saying I always do the right thing or it's always this way. But I, I love this view that Clement espouses that it's because of his love for God, who is the true object of our love, and yeah. so. And- you know, I, I've often said that I would be a Christian whether or not heaven existed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And, you know, whether or not I end up a, a worm in the dirt, you know, a worm's food in the dirt, you know, it, it's all for, um, you know, what I take to be the love of God, you know. Yeah. So. And he does, I mean, he talks about heaven. He talks about hell. He talks about punishment in this life and in the next. 
and he says they're real. I mean, he clearly believes in them, but he says that that basically both of those are bad motivations. That that's not the reason why we ought to do anything. That we ought to be motivated out of faith, hope, and love. What's the phrase he uses for faith, hope, and love? It's the something triad. It's the uh, uh, he like the divine triad or something like that. Basically, the three things that are supposed to motivate us is a real faith in God, a real love for God and for people, um, and that that should be the source of our motivations for everything. Yeah, he says the temple yeah. of God is seen established on three foundations, faith, hope, and love. Yeah. So, very Pauline or Paul-influenced mm-hmm. thing to say, yeah. One issue I we don't have a lot of time to talk about, I don't think, because we're running out of time, but that I think is really interesting is this whole discourse on perfection that he goes through. And I feel like I've probably read stuff into it a lot because when I was reading it, but he seems to be concerned with it. Uh, I, I can't, I couldn't help but wrestle with the fact that he seemed to be implying that, that as Christians, we could attain this, this point where we no longer sinned or where we were perfectly obedient. He actually used the phrase being perfected in love, which is a quote from first John um, which for people who are familiar with Wesley's theology, that actually plays into John Wesley's theology, which I believe we should hit on about 2046, I think. <laughs> it's, uh, I think I think based on looking at the schedule, we should reach Wesley right about then, just, just shy of my great-grandson's 13th birthday. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, we should be with... Uh, with uh, um, with that, but at the same time, what I felt, I felt more confused about his conversation on perfection than on anything else, because he makes the claim that almost is like he almost seems to be affirming a certain kind of sin nature, because he says here that um, here in book four, chapter eight, he says, although a perfect man may not have sinned in act while he endures affliction, he suffers similarly as a child in this having within him the sinful principle. So that almost implies like a sin nature, the sinful principle. But not embracing the opportunity of committing sin, he does not sin, so that he is not to be reckoned as not having sinned. For as he who wishes to commit adultery is an adulterer, although he does not succeed in committing adultery, and he that wishes to commit murder is a murderer, although he is unable to kill. So uh, without just keeping going on, because he just kind of strings these together, how I read that is he's basically saying, even if you've not killed, and even if you've not committed adultery, and even if you've not acted in these sins, you nonetheless are a sinner because you have the principle of sin, which I take to be a sin nature of some sort, like Mm -hmm. you're born with some kind of an inclination. And just the thought of these things, like an inclination makes you a sinner. So, he says that, which is very in line with kind of traditional Christian theology on the nature of man. But he then goes on, and I get confused. He seems to imply that uh, nonetheless Christians can be perfected in love in some sense, and that we should all aim at that perfection. And we, we talked about this a bit earlier when he was essentially saying that perfection is different for different people. But that was a very confusing bit. And, and as I was kind of thinking about it, I feel like, and I'm chalking this up to, I just want to see what you guys think. I feel like I have long wrestled with this tension in my life. And that is, I believe that God changes me as a Christian. 
But what does that look like? Because I still see that I am sinful every day. So what constitutes a changed life? Like what makes me changed? I feel like I'm wrestling with that. What kind of virtue defines a person as a Christian? Like to what degree? Because it seems like he's basically saying, yeah, perfection is the standard, which none of us meet. I've now, I certainly am not perfect. And I would venture to say that everybody I've met is imperfect. And I get confused in kind of what he's saying, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, first, just to talk about the text, I kind of thought he meant perfection after death, like eventually. I did not pick up on any after death stuff in those texts. That doesn't mean it's not there, but I didn't pick up on any of that. Well, he may be contradicting what he says in four, but in five, he does say um, he's actually talking. Well, first he quotes Plato saying uh, that there, if there's a good, basically I shall attain it when I am dead, but not in this life. And then he says, but the pure, and then he quotes Matthew, but the pure in heart shall see God when they arrive at the final perfection, which to me, if he just, he quotes Plato in this context, because what he is trying to say is you will eventually become perfect because that's the only way to be with God. Yeah. Uh, which I think then that is more traditional. Yeah. Which now he could be contradicting what he said in four. I'm not. I'm not really sure how yeah. to take what he said in four. Well, in honest. four, in four, I, he doesn't say anything about the afterlife or anything like that. Right. And and he seems to be, he 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 really couches it in concrete terms, talking about not sinning and how you not sin, like how you avoid sinning and and what it means to avoid sin. So he seems to be talking about behavior. It seems like it. Yeah. Now, one thing I would say is. The notion of perfection just is this idea of completion or attaining right, kind of right. what you're supposed to attain. So it may not carry with it the idea of not ever sinning, but he still seems to address that a bit. So I don't know. Chad, you're nodding. What do, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it all turns on what we mean by perfection. I mean, this is actually – I mean, this might be somewhat controversial, but I take this when Jesus says, what is it, Matthew 7, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Um, I still take e- – that in some way, to ha- like as in attain your your telos, because it's tele to let it's the same it's the same verb uh, to for to to be complete as in to be yeah to be complete to go to your end to achieve your end to achieve to achieve your your goal what you were created for, um, and so I, I guess you know maybe in the sense that like uh, in the sense that uh, Trevor was saying with Plato that we don't achieve our end until or we don't we're not complete until uh, we meet, reach God. Um, you know, there's like there's there is this intermediate period, but we're always continuing to seek this completion, and we won't know it until the end. I, I yeah, I mean, I just think it's yeah, I, I think it has more to do not with like without blemish or without fault, um, but but just. Uh, are what we're created for. Well, and he does say a lot of things that coincide with what you just said. I mean, he talks about how the perfection of a woman is different from the perfection of a man. And I assume what he means is that, that there is a difference in the sense of what they're attaining for than what, you know, like he says, and he actually brings up childbirth in that context, men can't bear children. So therefore that is one way in which their telos, as you said, their end is different. But then he also brings it down to the spiritual gifts. Some people are teachers, some people are prophets, some people are apostles, you know, and he says each one of them has a different perfection or tell us. So that fits, but he still talks a lot about 
the degree of sinlessness. Like he, he talks about actually never sinning. Like the little bit I just read about, um, you know, where he was saying that we never reach a point where you don't sin. But I, there, then he seems to contradict that where he says, but you can get to a point where you don't sin and where you're perfect in love. And so I, that's where my confusion comes from. Well, I mean, we're running, we're running a little long here. The, I mean, the other thing is, and this is one aspect of our study that we haven't talked a lot about, which is development <laughs> um, in Christian theology. We we mention it every now and, but for the early, you know, for, I think I, I may have said this. I don't know, but Augustine is actually somewhat unique in that he chooses to get baptized relatively young um, for the period. Like there's at least a couple hundred period in the early church where people didn't want to get baptized until their deathbed because they didn't want to sin after death. And sin is not in the Calvinistic, totally depraved, everything that we do, every inclination is sinful. Um, Specific list of things that you could probably obtain from um, with, I mean, you know, and so I think like, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, to them, it's a much lighter notion. It's not every urge is sinful. Like I was growing, you know, I was taught growing up. Um, and so I, I think that that also plays into the ability to be perfect. Hmm. Thanks for listening to a history of Christian theology. Please check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash a history of Christian theology. We will be doing our live episode in less than a month. So check us out. Um, and we would love to see you there. We'll be back next week with more Stromata and in our last episode on Clement of Alexandria. Thanks again. Bye.